I don't know if you know where the terminology gaslighting started. No. Uh, it was a film, I think, in the 1930s. I think it was 1938 off the top of my head. It's around that late 30s and 40s called Gaslight. And in the film Gaslight, uh, there was a married couple. And throughout the film, the man's objective was to make his wife think she was going insane. So he would move things and then deny he'd done it. Or he would say, it wasn't me. Or he would then, you know, uh, deny he'd said something. So throughout the movie, throughout the movie, the woman's always questioning herself. The wife is always questioning herself, wondering if she's going crazy. Hello and welcome to Spellage of Business. I'm Kate Marchand and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by psychotherapist D.U. Sivery. And D.U. has got a niche interest in narcissism, which is why we are here. Good afternoon and welcome to you. Yeah, hi there, Kate. Pleasure to be here and be uh, a guest on your podcast. I'm sure it'll be fantastic. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. So we hear this term narcissism banded around all over the place. If I meet up with my girlfriends, sometimes the phrase comes up. Is it a term that has just been overused in the general public? And, and what does it actually mean? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, to answer you directly, personally, and also in my work, I think has been overused quite a lot, actually. And uh, when people are angry with other people, they call them narcs or narcissists. Um, it's very interesting because it got its uh, origins back in Greek mythology, actually. So it's quite funny. My family from Cyprus originally. And, you know, Narcissus was a character in Greek myth. He, um, he was in the woods one day. And Echo, one of the mountain nymphs, nymphs, fell in love with him. But, you know, he rebuffed her advances. And she disappeared and just became an echo, just became a sound. And Nemesis, the, um, the goddess of revenge, mm. heard about it and decided to get him back for what he'd done to Echo. So the next time he went, hung, uh, he went hunting, and he was thirsty. He bent over by a pool to drink some water, saw his reflection and fell in love with himself. And he stayed at that spot apparently until he died. You know, in some versions they say he um, committed suicide. In others, he just melted away because of his love for himself. And where he died, um, the narcissus plant grew, the flower. In other words, a daffodil. And because of its roots, it's come to mean a person who has uh, an extremely high opinion of themselves or high love of themselves uh, to, to an extent where everything else doesn't matter as much. So it is a personality disorder, actually, and it does have nine traits. And if you tick five of them, you're deemed to have narcissistic personality disorder. And these type of things include lack of empathy, manipulative behavior, coercion, um, thinking about your needs only, uh, feeling entitled is a good one. Admiration, yes, they want to be admired all the time. So, of course, you could just meet a very selfish person and call them a narc or narcissist, but they might not necessarily be one in terms of the medical diagnosis. So you have to tick these boxes, really. And do they actually love themselves? Because surely a person who loves themselves has a greater balance in their place in the world and they're more stable and less... Yeah, that's a very good question, actually, because it's a distorted love. Because however much we love ourselves, we recognise our flaws, don't we? And we recognise maybe areas that need self-improvement. But a narcissist doesn't see that. They feel they're perfect, so they don't need to be improved in any way. And they don't have any flaws in their minds. That's a distortion, you see. And we just use the word nar narcissist uh, like an insult, really. And it, and it kind of is. But as I said, and the sort of psychological or medical definition, 
you know, we have five types, really. We have the overt narcissist. That's like the classic narcissist, very selfish, very self-serving. We have the covert narcissist. That one, that type is someone who um, is very insecure, very anxious, has bouts of depression, um, but does everything underhanded, if that makes sense. They're not loud and brash, but they still do, still do everything for their own benefits. So they're the covert ones. Antagonistic narcissists. They're the types who, as the word suggests, very antagonistic, argumentative, competitive, have to be number one, you know. Communal narcissists, uh, again, as the word suggests, they like to be around other people, look like they're doing good charity work, helping others, but they only do it for their own benefit, you know. They only do it to get something back. Or let's say they've uh, donated money to charity, for example. They're not the types to do it anonymously. They do it so everybody knew they did it, you know? So there's always a payback for them. And the final type, they're the malignant narcissists. And they, they're probably the worst. They're very vindictive, sadistic, enjoy hurting people. Again, very self-centered. And lack of empathy is very low. If they hurt people or people are in pain, they don't mind somebody brought into this world or grow up in this world that behaves like that where they get pleasure out of causing pain it's true it's because true we can all deal with the showman the showman we can turn our backs on That's yeah very fun. true but very the person true. that gets pleasure from creating creating pain i i get it but if you think about it um prisons are full of people like that Society's full of people like that. Um, not to take it down, I'm aware of, you know, maybe youngsters listening, so I won't take it down a sexual avenue, but there are sadists, if we think of the sexual side as well. So there are people who like hurting other people, even in a sexual environment. So it is quite normal, actually, because, again, where you have sadists, you have masochists, so they almost balance each other out. You can't have one without the other. So they do exist in every shape and form. So has something happened in childhood that has meant they've lost a perspective of what it is to just be loved and appreciated for who you are? Yeah, that's a very good question. There are two types of theories as to how narcissists are formed, you know, especially some of the narcissistic personality disorder, uh, NPD. So the first theory is that children who got very spoilt, very entitled, also who get everything they want, will argue, scream and shout until the parents cave in and get them whatever they want. They grow up like that. They grow up in that manner. And then throughout their relationships or in work environments or interacting with other people, they have to get what they want. They, they don't take no for an answer. They're incessant. They carry on uh, until they get what they want. And on the other side, we have uh, what's believed is the total opposite. Someone who grew up with nothing, maybe poor parents or lacked everything, wasn't given any love, for example, or shown love. So they grow up craving that. And then everything they do has that in the back of their minds like attention all the time so they're the other side so it's like two sides but the goal is the same to get what you want and to always be loved get the center of attention be admired one it could be said has too much of something and the other one too little but the results are the same type of human growing up i mean so the desire is to get what they want but what they want is not necessarily a positive thing for those around them. So I'm trying to think that what, what they want might not be that they can provide a, you know, a reasonable home and a holiday and have their kids go to school or play football or whatever. They're not necessarily striving for what we would think is just a stable life 
Yes, very true, very true. In fact, what defines them is instability, you know? So they like the sort of grandiose gestures. Another part of um, narcissistic personality disorder is, is feeling important or associating yourself with importance. Uh, grandiose gestures, grandiose lifestyles, lovely holidays, you know, flash cars, jewelry. So, yes, it could be a part of ordinary lifestyle, absolutely. But for most people, it's not. They're luxuries. But a narcissist uh, associates luxuries as being a normal way of life. So they get bored very quickly in a normal relationship, let's call it. And I presume having a sports car is a need as much as it is to eat your dinner every night. Absolutely. Or let's say the kids need something, you know, or, or even paying for their school or going on holiday with the children. They'd probably much rather buy something for themselves than for the kids, for example, or for their partners. And also, um, it's not just men. It is mostly men. Around 8% of narcissists are men. Around 8 It's about 7.9%, something like that. So around 8 And for women, nearly 5%. So it's not a massive part of society, but big enough. So every 100 men you meet seven narcissists it's quite a lot eight narcissists it's quite a lot and five in a hundred women again it's still quite a lot really but it's prevalent enough for us all to encounter exactly or have an experience of encountering narcissistic personality disorder somewhere on our life's path absolutely absolutely and as i said you know um, a lot of us could have those traits as well and maybe not be aware of it, or we might have one or two, for example. Yeah, I'm quite conscious of that, that some of these traits possibly exist in all of us in terms of desires that we have or liking who doesn't like to get their own way in some shape or form or, um, um, yeah, just not liking to be embarrassed or liking to be shamed. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, but when it becomes obsessive, and that's a big part of narcissism, very obsessive behavior, when it becomes obsessive, then it's overriding of everything else in their lives, you know? So let's say you like attention. That's one of the narcissistic uh, traits. Uh, or you feel entitled. Then if you have uh, feelings of... Uh, Delusions of grandeur, for example, even if you only have one or two traits, if it's very overriding, it will still impact your life on a very big degree because they're quite negative personality traits. You're right. You're right what you say. We all want nice things in life. Very true. But if that desire for the nice things overrides all, all the other things, that's the problem. There's an imbalance in perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, they don't have what I would call a normal perspective, because normality, um, you have a sense of what you can afford, you have a sense of what you need, but the two overriding features for male and female narcissists is love of money and love of sex. So, and what I mean by that is men tend to do anything to get more money, to get status, and that then gives them power. And with that power, of course, they can get sex, i.e. women. And for women, they use sex to get money, if that makes sense. So they will use their femininity or charms or whatever it may be in order to get money or status from a man or for themselves. So the ironic thing is for both men and women, money and sex is very, very important. It represents a lot for the narcissistic mind. And so is this where gaslighting comes in? Because there's this obsession of getting what you want. You will do anything to get what you want. That means you will have no holds bars in lying and manipulating and... Um, absolutely. Doing what's required. Absolutely. And see, that's another one, you know, just to go back with that one. Um, I don't know if you know where the terminology gaslighting started. No. Uh, it was a film... I think in the 1930s, I think it was 1938 off the top of my head. It's around that late 30s and 40s called Gaslight. 
And in the film Gaslight, uh, there was a married couple. And throughout the film, the man's objective was to make his wife think she was going insane. So he would move things and then deny he'd done it. Or he would say, it wasn't me. Or he would then, you know, uh, deny he'd said something. So throughout the movie, throughout the movie, the woman's always questioning herself. The wife is always questioning herself, wondering if she's going crazy, um, being sure she'd left things in places that are no longer there, the husband denying everything. And then that word got used for all subsequent behaviours whereby a person denies everything, lies, um, makes it a goal to um lie to the extent the other person doubts themselves or doesn't believe what their eyes tell them or what their ears hear so it's a very calculating and manipulative tool actually and got to be actually quite a high degree of intelligence here to be able to um maintain that level of um illusion so i don't know if that's Absolutely. Absolutely well spotted. Most narcissists tend to be very sharp, very intelligent. And what I mean is they're very quick at working you out what your weak points might be because they can't manipulate the person unless they know their weak points. You know, so if they know you like something, whatever it is, let's say attention, just for example. So in the early stages when you meet when you meet uh, a narcissist, male or female, if they figure out that you want attention, then they'll love bomb you. They'll give you so much attention, uh, send you so many texts, for example, or emails, or send you presents all the time. They'll declare their love. So for the unsuspecting person, they'll think, what a romantic soul, you know, what a lovely gesture. But for the narcissist, he knows what he's doing. He's very quickly getting into your mind. Um, so that's one example, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. They're very intelligent because they work people out very quickly. And then what you're describing is they're using their intelligence in quite a destructive way, and you can't help wondering if they decided to address their wounds, they could use their capabilities in a very constructive way and make a very positive impact yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But if you remember what I said at the start, for them what they're doing is perfection. They don't see it as doing anything wrong. So they don't have that, let's say, higher conscious thinking whereby they're questioning what they're doing. So that's why they don't tend to seek help or that's why they don't tend to look for personal development. They're like almost a, uh, a perfect survivor, if that makes sense. They will survive no matter what happens to them. Mm, but they've got no, they're, they're missing that awareness of a different way is possible if only they could. Correct. And another interesting thing is um, narcissistic personality disorder falls into something called cluster B personality disorders. And these consist of antisocial personality disorders borderline personality disorder, uh, histrionic personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. So all these uh, personality traits or disorders have very similar patterns of thinking. That's why they're clustered together as cluster B. And again, disregard for others, very impulsive, no regard for law, law or order you know, attention-seeking, egotistical, always wanting to win, highly competitive, uh, very moody, very aggressive and angry. And a lot of them have these traits and these personality disorders. So that's why I said a narcissist is almost perfect because they will always win. They're like, uh, let's say they're like a shark, you know, a perfect killing machine. If you look at the ocean, stayed the same for millions of years, right? And uh, a narcissist is like that. If you think nature's developed the mind in some way, so there must be some benefit to it, right? Yeah, I, that's what I'm hearing you describing, almost like the perfect killing machine. Yeah, that's so, right. 
presumably for some pro- some professions there are benefits of being so uh, I don't know if you're describing actually a high level of emotional intelligence in that they can read people well or a very, very low level of emotional intelligence because they've got no empathy. I'm not sure, but this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question because they tune into people's emotions very quickly. So it's almost like connecting with them. But because they lack empathy, they can never feel the pain other people do. So. Let's say the modus operandi is to cheat you out of your money. So a lot of online scammers, for example, tend to be uh, sociopaths and narcissists because there's no element of guilt to what they do. There's no element of remorse to what they do. Uh, Telephone scammers, all these type of people who can scam other people or elderly people or the vulnerable and have no empathy or remorse Again, you need a high level of intelligence to know how to get into people's heads and bank accounts. Absolutely. But because of the lack of empathy, you don't feel the pain of loss. For you, you just look at the rewards of gain. So their brains, if we look at something like uh, the reward center, for example, you know, where you get uh, boosts of dopamine and serotonin, for example, they get rewarded when they cheat someone but when they make money, they, they get rewarded. They get that boost of dopamine and serotonin. They feel good. It's their drug almost, their drug of choice, how to cheat people, how to use people, how to manipulate them. And I think you're describing this sort of going through society wearing a, a mask, the sort of a veneer that you can't actually ever get behind it and see a true person. It's true. It's very true. And that's a brilliant analogy. I'll tell you why. They're often charmers. Very good at charming people, right? Very good at charming people. Very good at giving compliments. Usually immaculately dressed. Uh, They look good. They smell good. Because they know first impressions are important. They know that. So they reel you in from the very beginning. Looking good. Complimenting you maybe. Reeling you in the sort of love bombing phase that they might do in business or in a business meeting. You'll get rich very quickly if you invest. If you buy this product, you will you will um, be better than your neighbours. Everyone will be jealous and envious of you. So they know how to get into people's minds and then make that sale or get that business deal or get that sexual partner they want. Yeah, so in certain areas of life it can actually be very yes useful yeah exactly exactly are there cultural differences how this game plays out in yeah that's a really good question that is an excellent excellent question thank you for asking that now having been born in the uk i was born in london i grew up there but i've lived in the mediterranean uh, spain portugal um, south of Europe, Cyprus. I've lived in Scandinavia for many years, 14 years in Denmark, in Copenhagen. Um, also short while in an Arabic country, Saudi Arabia. I was there for a few months working and then spent a lot of time in America, Far East. I've traveled extensively and worked in other countries and lived in other countries. Now, what I've noticed is that in the north of Europe, where there's a more social mentality and societies for the greater good, you know, they believe that everyone should have an equal footing, help, uh, equality in male, female roles or the sexes or gender, all that sexuality equal. There tends to be a lower levels of narcissism because The society from a young age is geared towards creating more equal equality and equal beings. Whereas if we look at more uh, money-based societies, then from a young age, children are taught maybe that to be a success, you have to have the most money or you have to get the best job or you have to um, be better than everybody else, all right? And this usually manifests itself quite young because 
people with money tend to send their children to private schools, for example. Whereas in Scandinavia, I know, having lived in Denmark, the Danish princes, uh, Prince Henrik and Prince Joachim, for example, they went to state school. They went to, the, to a state school. They went to a state university. So there, the mindset's different. Our schools and colleges are so good, we can all go there. So they don't have an elitist mentality. And that creates a non-elitist society. So in some cultures where you have strong classes and strong uh, groups based on your income or money, there tends to be more cases of narcissism, I would say. A friend, again, with a glass of wine, was <laughs> describing to me that she felt a particular person that is labelled as a narcissist in the conversation recruited flying monkeys. I was like, what are you talking about? Should, you know, like in The Wizard of Oz. Oh. The way the witch has these flying monkeys that do her dirty work. Is that something that is common? Is that relevant? That they sort of recruit allies to... I like side? that, flying monkeys. I remember that one. You know, next time I'm... I love The Wizard of Oz, by the way. Watched it a million times from when I was a child. So yeah, flying monkeys, that's a good one. You know, Wicked Witch of the West, getting them to do her dirty work. Yeah. And that's a brilliant analogy because that's kind of how it is. They are very good at, you know, mirrors and smoke screens, creating lots of aliases, fake accounts, um, stalking, spying, snooping, and then getting the right people to do their dirty work for them. You know, reaching out to other people, creating drama, uh, threatening people, using other people. So actually, that's an extremely good analogy. Yeah, very good. So when you're in the midst of this, it takes quite a lot of realising that you are saying, if you're living around all these smoke and mirrors and being mm. told or, you know, no, that's not right, this is right, and then them having flying monkeys sort of supporting yeah. their cause, yeah. Feel like you're trapped in a world, or you could feel like you're trapped in a world of utter insanity, um, and have to actually be quite strong and have your feet firmly rooted to the ground to know you are not insane. Yeah, very true. And again, unfortunately, it goes back to the gaslighting thing you mentioned, and we spoke about that. If you feel you're going insane, or you're being not heard in some way, it's very difficult to maintain that sanity level, you know? Mm. Because as I said earlier, um, people with NPD, they're very incessant, very obsessive. They don't give up easily. So just carry on to the bitter end. So you're always swimming upstream. You're always questioning your sanity. You're questioning your love. And in relationships, they're very good at creating trauma bonds, you know? And a trauma bond is where you feel that someone's in love with you. They show you lots of love and affection. Then they withdraw that. They take it away. Then they give it back again. Then they withdraw it. Then they're elusive or abusive or both. Then they apologize. Then they come back again. Everything's great. You might go on holiday. They might buy you a present. They might apologize. And then they disappear again. And again, this creates this um, trauma bond where your brain then thinks this is love. Because every time you see them, again, you get that dopamine hit, you get that high, you get that uh, serotonin boost. So you're happy to be with them. And then every time they leave, it's like withdrawal symptoms, you know, like whatever, whatever you're addicted to. When it's taken away, you display the same withdrawal symptoms. So. It's very difficult to maintain that for a long time and not question your sanity. And again, I've had many clients, um, usually women, I'll be honest with you, usually women who have described relationships like that, where the man buys them presents, then he disappears, then he comes back again, then he goes off again, doesn't tell them where he's, doesn't tell the woman where he's going. 
So it's like a constant state of limbo. You never really know if you're in a relationship or not. And every time they come back, they're apologetic. They bring presents with them. They say, let's go on holiday somewhere nice. I'll make it up to you. So they know exactly what they're doing. So for the victim, let's say, it's a very difficult pattern and cycle to break out of. Very difficult. They're living on quicksand. You have no Exactly. Living. Exactly. Absolutely right. Does this happen also, not just in personal relationships, but in corporate relationships? And of course, I want to bring up the relationship the government has with us, because a very specific <laughs> example that you make me think of was the day Boris said, schools are going to be open tomorrow, 24 hours later, no schools are going to be closed. And you're just like, hang on a minute. How can I plan, organize my life when you're pulling the carpet away from underneath me? So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question, actually, because if you think logically, with my description of uh, narcissistic personality disorder, and again, that's connected to things like there's something called a dark triad, where you have Machiavellianism and uh, psychopathy, for example, things like that. Um, people with these type of thinking patterns, they will be attracted to. Areas where you make a lot of money or can make a lot of money, i.e. business, corporate world, or politics that gives you power, status, with the promise of money at the other end, you know? And it's interesting you mentioned Boris because it's interesting why. If you think the USA, again, I'm not getting political, I'm, I'm, I'm not picking political parties here, whatever, just characteristics of personalities right that the usa and britain had a very charismatic leader let's say you know trump knew how to speak to the masses as a proper old school diplomat and politician debatable all right but as a charismatic speaker he knew how to reel the people in boris pretty much the same so people didn't look for you know, bona fide political statements or, um, as I said, old school diplomacy and old school politicians and politics. People got drawn into this charisma, this person. Oh, I love Boris. He makes me laugh. He's funny. He's, uh, he's a good chappy. You know, leave Boris alone. He, he can't get everything right. So he managed to win people over with this kind of um, sense of, being liked, he created this whole persona of it's not really my fault. There's this dark forces at play here. Yeah, you know, sort of being the bumbling aristocrat. Yes, you said it. I was thinking that. Yeah. I was wondering if that was appropriate, but you perfect. <laughs> bumbling aristocrat. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. I mean, it's interesting how many US presidents come from a actor's background as well. There where... you go. Perhaps what you were describing is again being able to put on that mask is yeah yeah very good one I mean again the classic one you can't get better than a Hollywood actor you know uh, Reagan was like that wasn't he so he was an actual actor who became president so you're mentioning just going back a couple of steps that the the, the person with the narcissistic personality disorder has this radar for Picking up on your weaknesses, on your vulnerabilities, and then basically exploiting them for their yes. own gain. And so if you find yourself living either in a work environment or a personal environment where you are on this quicksand, but somehow you've managed to recognize you are sane, it is the environment and the person or people you're surrounded by that are insane, how do you gather yourself together and extract yourself, knowing there's likely to be a war of retribution for having seen past the smoke and mirrors? Yeah, again, another very interesting question. I mean, I think sometimes what happens, what I've seen over the years working with people who are in relationships with, let's say, narcissists or cluster B type personalities or the dark triad 
whatever, okay? You, you start to mirror them and mimic them in terms of their behaviors for survival's sake. So let's say you're very empathetic and willing to do whatever someone wants and to help them, to look after them. I've seen a lot of natural empaths start to change because if let's say the narcissist is more dominant, you either match that type of behavior within your relationship or you crumble to a degree. So what I've seen over the years, you know, if it's, if it's your boss, you can always leave that job, you know? And usually when you stand up to someone like that, a business owner or boss, they'll fire you because they don't want someone to stand up to them, right? But in a relationship, I've noticed, and again, predominantly women, I work predominantly with, with women, actually, um, they've learned over the years to maybe stand up to the narcissist in their own way or have their own victories without being confrontational. Um, and usually as well, ultimately, these type of relationships don't work out anyway because once someone gets stronger, they realize they've been manipulated for a long time. So your strength actually comes, ironically, by, by mirroring, mirroring what you see. So if someone's shouting at you, eventually you'll start shouting back. Or if someone is criticizing you, eventually you'll start criticizing them back. So the irony here is it's good for your own self-survival, actually, because you stand up for yourself. You feel more empowered. You don't feel as meek or submissive. But this also plays into the narcissist's hands because he wants an emotional reaction from you. Mm -hmm. He wants to get in your head and influence you in some way. And that's what they do. You're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If you say nothing, you become too submissive. And if you stand up for yourself and scream and shout, you're in their playing field. Mm. Yeah, they know how to have a war. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What you're describing is they get rewarded from either either extremes of you getting angry or receiving their love bombing. They, they are rewarded by the fact you have a stronger emotional reaction one way or another. Perfect. That's exactly what it is. Well spotted. Mm. And presumably, because most of the listeners here will be clinicians and majority will be physiotherapists, so we'll have a compulsion to nurture people and part of their sort of mission in life will be to give. And that's how they've ended up in this situation because they were attracted to a wound and they could see the wounded animal, the wounded person, as much as the narcissist could see their weaknesses, they could see the wound and wanted to give and heal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, for a lot of people, if you work in certain areas or fields, you have to have a high level of empathy to a degree. You have to be able to tune into other people. And... Again, um, narcissists know this. So they're naturally attracted to empaths, people in the caring profession, you know, and for a lot of them, they like to sort of play psychological games with people who are empathetic to see how far they can push them. Yeah, yeah. And examples of that would certainly be some, uh, and the way the behavior of some insurance companies treat clinics in terms of how far can we drop your prices and demand output from you but for next to nothing yeah absolutely yeah well spotted exactly in, in different clinics and different types of environments physios everything like that you're absolutely right in the corporate world they they do play on the empathy of a lot of caregivers and care providers so can two narcissists work together or do they spot each other and look the other way? <laughs> really question. Like, are they magnets that are attracted? Or... Yeah, and can become some super dark force that yeah. makes your life a living hell. <laughs> or do or... they repel each other, repel, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, good one. I'd say both. Again, I've worked with narcissistic couples and... To start with, they're attracted to each other because they recognize something of themselves in the other person. If you remember the start, I said they tend to be overly focused on their appearance, how they are. You know, they want to exude wealth, so they'll all have expensive watches on or, or have the latest 
technology and gadgets. And so someone who likes that will immediately spot that. So they tend to attract each other. But usually from what I've seen, fireworks kick off at some point because they're, they're, they're trying to outdo each other or outsmart each other constantly. And um, cheating tends to be a big part of these type of relationships because when they don't get the attention that they crave, they go off, cheat, then come back. And then the other one will do the same. So they never really leave each other, but they just maintain this um, maelstrom whirlpool of a relationship that's in constant negative flux. It's always, it's always there's always drama. There's always something bad to it. And um, they start off as the magnets that attract. And then after some time, it's like they repel each other and can't be together anymore. But that usually takes quite a long time, actually. They're so busy trying to outdo each other, one-upmanship, competitive. Um, they're not proud of their partners. They're always trying to outdo them. So it's interesting they pick another narcissist to compete against. So presumably if children are involved as well, this can get really nasty. Oh, absolutely. There's children involved, for sure. And unfortunately, it can affect children again, as I mentioned, in terms of maybe mimicking that behavior or growing up scared or fearful or, or you know, being very meek because their parents are very dominating. Does so, the legal system recognize behavior or not really? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I personally would say I don't think so. I've, I've, I've written things, reports for courts, actually. I've done that. Even for the high courts, I've done that, written some reports and things regarding people. But I think on an everyday level with people, with crime, uh, criminal law, it doesn't really recognize any form of mental illness. Uh, my research I've studied, it said anything between 10 and 90% of people in prisons have maybe mental health issues or abuse problems, you know, problems with narcotics or other other drugs. And that's a very high level. You know, even if we look in the middle and say it's 50% on average, that's a very high level of people who've got some sort of mental health disorder or issue. So I don't think the, the system looks at it in that way. It's just evidence-based, isn't it? Did you do the crime or not? You know, police, CPS, courts, juries, guilty sentence, there's no real area for mental health analysis. Unless someone says they've done something on the grounds of diminished responsibility, for example, maybe then, or their lawyers try and get them out because of some sort of uh, mental health ailment. But the, the, the system isn't geared towards any form of mental health, no. And going back to what you said earlier and the, the way the narcissist likes to make the um, I think we want to use the word victim because the the other party so yes. mad, presumably yeah. they yeah. will be just constantly trying to show exactly. off themselves exactly. that the person's the one that's at fault or, or is mad. Exactly. See, the only reason I use the word victim is it actually even in the in the, the legal or the criminal where you have a perpetrator and a victim. Mm. I'm not necessarily saying they're victims, you know. People use the word survivors, or as you said, the other side, the other party. Absolutely. But just to simplify, sort of perpetrate mm. a victim, mm. someone who suffered at the hands mm. of someone else. But you're right, you know, it might not be the best word. Yeah, but the the the, the narcissist is going to be trying, if they're carrying out their repeated patterns of behaviour, to show themselves off in the most grandiose light and show the other party to be the ones that are bonkers or illegitimate in some way in terms of their um absolutely their cause yeah. absolutely right you're absolutely right so again it's the pattern thing it just keeps on continuing and the thing with the narcissist they're never wrong you see so it's never their fault they deny it until it's proven and even then there's no remorse or they'll still say it was a miscarriage of justice you know they're never guilty yeah so what you're actually describing is quite a high level of predictability in their unpredictability. Brilliant. Well spotted. They're actually quite easy to work out. Once you know what you're looking for, either at work or private life areas, 
yeah, they're quite easy to work out, quite predictable. They don't realize how predictable they are. So the more people that know this type of behavior, yeah, the better it is, I think. What's the difference then between a narcissist, Machiavellian and a psychopath? What's the difference? They're all pretty similar. That's why, you know, again, as a triangle, it's the, it's the dark triad because they're very similar with their behaviours, you know. Uh, narcissist, as I said, very egotistical, coercive, but manipulation is a big part. Machiavellian as well, you know, cunning, um, duplicitous, again, uh, manipulative, very much so. Uh, and again, the same with sociopaths, similar types of traits, again, with very low levels of empathy, just like the other two. And, and again, there's almost the perfect self-serving machine. Everything they do is in their own self-interest. Nothing in terms of helping other people or being um, altruistic in any way. Absolutely not. So all three of them sort of work together, you could say, in terms of having a very negative effect on the people around them. It's like this triangle that just doesn't end. In some ways, you actually make me think, should we pity them rather than loathe them? Because their experience is life. You're not describing one filled with joy. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, you know. And I suppose we could connect it to the, uh, the legal system and criminal law system. I mean, I said I lived in Scandinavia, right, in, in Denmark for many years. And um, I know the system there very well. And there, they look at rehabilitation as the big modus operandi for people who may be found guilty of a crime, okay? For them, it's about rehabilitating. Whereas I think in Britain more, again, from what I've seen, I could be wrong, but it's more about punishment. So if someone's committed a crime, they're punished. They're not looked at in the sense of pity, as you said, or maybe some form of forgiveness or rehabilitation. So when they come out back into society, they can be productive. So I think it's, again, going back to your question about culture, it's a cultural thing as well. If a society is more forgiving and a society is geared towards um, rehabilitation, a prisoner or inmate or someone suffering like this is looked to be helped in some way. Whereas I think in the UK, again, it's more about punishment. That's, that's, that's the, let's say, the, the legal and criminal side of it. But again, the psychology side, should they be pitied to answer your question directly? Yes and no. If we can help them, absolutely. They can see the error of their ways and change. Sometimes they might need medication for, you know, anxiety or high levels of stress. Um, inability to sleep as well is a big problem for people like that. Uh, if we look at maybe trying to do some rehabilitation, there might not be a stigma attached to it. And then people will be more forthcoming in seeking help maybe rather than feeling, no, everyone would think I'm a demon or I'm someone really evil. Mm. So there's a lot of stigma attached in the UK, I would say. Yeah, but there's a um, a, a need to be willing participants and be willing to take the mask off and expose yourself. If you are going to want to go through any rehabilitation process of any sort, you've got to be prepared to be vulnerable at some point in the process, or you've certainly got to be prepared to participate. You can't, you know. Very good point. And it kind of goes back to what we said earlier, where if you feel there's nothing wrong with you, how can you be vulnerable if you feel that, Everyone else is the problem. You don't need to look within for answers. You're always projecting outwards, you know? So it's always someone else's fault. You're always the victim. That's another reason I used victim earlier because the narcissistic mindset is they're always the victim. They're never to blame, never at fault. If something goes wrong, they'll blame everyone else. They'll play the victim. So when you have people like that, it's very difficult then to rehabilitate and help them. Because they don't see there's anything wrong with them. Mm. That's the actual problem. Mm. So you make me think a little of that phrase, fool me once, 
shame on you, fool me twice, shame yep. on me, yep. in that once I've learned and, and recognised this situation, I've got to not be a victim. I've got to own my response and how I handle the situation. Absolutely. Very good point. And a lot of the times when I work with people like that, who maybe been, again, for want of a better phrase, a victim or a target yeah. or at the receiving end of yeah. a narcissist, um, a lot of them, once they leave the relationship, they feel very guilty or they feel they've enabled it in some way or it was their fault. And I always told them, it's never been your fault because these type of people who think like this are experts at it. And they saw something in you, maybe some empathy or love, and they just preyed on it. And again, another way to describe most people uh, to a narcissist, it's a supply source. You're either uh, supplying them with love or attention or money or sex or whatever it is. You're just a supply source. They don't actually love you. They don't have that emotional depth. They can say the words. They know what to say. It goes back to intelligence, as you said. They know what to say to reel you in. Oh, I love you. I was very sorry. I didn't mean it. Let's try again. But there's no depth to that. There's no um, gravitas. There's no heft to that. What they tell you to those words, to that phrase, nothing. It's just a phrase. There's, there's nothing behind it. And as I said earlier, people then project what they want outwards. So if someone tells you they love you, oh, I've heard he loves me. You know, um, I'll, I'll do everything to make it work. Wow. He or, she, he or she said they'll try. That's good enough for me. Or we'll go on holiday. We'll have a great time. He's promised me that. She's promised me that. And again, a narcissist is very good at promises. They live in the future. One day we'll be happy. One day we'll get that dream house. One day we'll go on that dream holiday. They never live in the present. And that for most people is good enough. They think, oh, the promise is there, the intention's there. Mm. But it's not. Yeah. Smoke well, we all have a dream that we're going to buy a different house in a few years' time. We're going to save up now, but then we've got to be taking the proactive action in the Correct. today that will give the whatever it is you want a few years down the line or, you know, it's like with the garden. If we're going to grow it, it's going to take time to grow, but we've got to be doing the proactive action, whereas you're describing it's hollow promises. How do we protect ourselves from this? But I'm actually thinking we've got to get savvier at spotting the behaviour patterns so that we don't yes. end up in a situation where we do feel victimised. Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, you're 100% right. Information is power. Knowledge is power. So the more awareness we have, the more chance we have to actually stop something from happening, you know? So as you said, quite rightly, become more savvy. Because if you recognize something, you have to trust your instincts. And most of us don't. We override that. And again, a narcissist knows that. So when it comes to love, as I said, the love bombing phase, or when it comes to making an investment, you don't want to be rich, don't you? This time next year, you'll, you'll have a lot of money, you know, if you invest in my company. You know, they'll show you a list of everyone who's invested. All, all, all of course, fabricated. You know, look at all these returns you'll make. And then they reel people in because they know what to say. So once you're savvy and you think, okay, I've heard this before, I'll trust my instincts. No one just makes thousands of pounds overnight. No one can love you in two weeks, you know. So once you start to understand these things and become more savvy, become more knowledgeable, you can then choose to disengage from that rather than fall in the trap. Yeah, yeah. So you start to really just turn your back. But for children yeah. who have less um, comparison between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships, that can be a bigger concern, I'm guessing. Yeah, of course. Um, you mean children who are caught in the middle of these type of relationships? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you see, again, if you think logically, for example, uh, because of that lack of empathy, they don't think of their children. It's almost impossible. Or they'll blame the child all the time. I've worked with families like that, for example, where it's the child's fault, you know, the child's fault, you know, 
not even any semblance of self-awareness that I'm doing something wrong as the parent. You know, it's always, he's always been like this or the teachers have warned us about his behavior. He's a troublesome child or she's very, very emotional and dramatic, but they don't connect that behavior to themselves. It's quite interesting, actually. They don't have that awareness because as you know, children, they just cry out for attention and love, all of them. That's, that's how we are as human beings, okay? And someone who can't give it, they don't realize the damage they're doing to that child, actually. They cannot see that. They just can't see it. In fact, they'll blame the child for, for suffering. So it's your fault. It's because of what you're doing. Why don't you do harder, better at school? Why don't you work harder? Why don't you have any friends? You know, it's never the parent's fault. If a parent or both of them are narcissists, then they will both start to blame the child. So absolutely, it's very difficult for the child in all of this. Very difficult. That just demonstrates how hollow this energy is, isn't it? I'm, yeah. I feel I can describe it as an energy rather than a person now, because when you describe that, that there is no compassion for their own child and they are blaming their own child for just childish behavior and being a child, very true. Very true. That's, That's a really how hollow it is. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. If you say it's a negative, let's say a negative ball of energy, mm. then they're always throwing it. Every time it comes, they just throw it to the child or throw it to each other. It's just this negative ball of energy that, that gets thrown around constantly. It never sticks. It, it never resonates that they need to change something. They don't have that ability. There's not that self-awareness. So I have to say, you're making me think of like the Dementors in Harry Potter, this dark force that just sucks everything pos positive. I didn't ever get beyond book four, so I don't know if the Dementors were ever caught at the end. Uh, do, do, they, do they fail in, in the end? Like Narcissus, do they eventually fall into the pond? Does this cat and mouse game eventually come to an end? Do they expose yeah, good, good, themselves? Good, good, very, very good question again. You know, thinking about the Harry Potter books, I think maybe... Uh, dementors, demented, you know, that's probably where that is connected to, you know. Mm. Demented is not a positive word. So, yeah, dark forces, well said. Um, what happens to most narcissists, actually, they do end up alone. They do eventually because each supply source dies out. And what they're scared of is people finding out who they are. But eventually everybody does. Everybody either hears about them or reads about them or finds out about them. So they're very good at trying to deflect everything from them onto other people. But eventually they do tend to end up alone because people can't be around them anymore. Now, what they use when they're younger maybe is good looks, attraction, money, status, but as you get older, these diminish, you know, for most people, of course, they do. Um, so they can't use the same things again. But because they're one-trick ponies, eventually that trick gets found out. So they do end up like narcissists, if we go full circle, just staring at themselves until they burn out. Mm. So if you've been on the receiving end, of a narcissistic personality disorder, actually there is quite a lot of hope in that story just to keep your feet planted, keep your sanity and keep creating your new life and let the chaos burn out behind you. Absolutely. And one of the best ways to do that, it's very difficult, I advise all my clients, is to have absolutely no contact. A narcissist hates to be ignored. They hate it. They absolutely hate to be ignored. And if you block them and don't respond, they'll keep trying with so many other people, their exes, people who know you. They'll give your number to other people or your social media. They'll always get people to reach out to you. But if you just keep ignoring them, there's nothing they can do. They just hate that. It eats away at them. It eats away in their minds. So I guess the best revenge is living well and letting them see it. Without them. Yes, because engaging in the war of retribution just continues to provide a feed. Absolutely. Wow, Absolutely. Wonderful. 
Thank you very, very much for your time today, Dean. That's been really, really insightful. Thank you as well for asking me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I know the subject matter isn't very um, well positive, let's say, but the positivity can be if people learn from this type of disorder and not get dragged into these games, either at work or in their private lives, right? Yeah, and you know, I think that's one of the things I've really taken from this conversation is recognizing how you can end up mirroring their behavior in response. Absolutely. And actually extraction is a better action to take. Absolutely, it is disengage, disengage and disengage again. That's the <laughs> advice at the end, all right? Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marklandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable, sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.